1 Samuel uh, chapter 18 this evening. And if you're with us here this evening without a Bible, there are men that are coming up the aisles right now. And if you just flag them down, they'll uh, get their attention. They'll be happy to deliver a Bible to you this evening so you can follow along with us in the Scriptures. When we pick things up in chapter 18, uh, of course, last week as we finished, and sometimes so much can happen in a week, it feels like a month ago. I don't know if that happens to you. But in in chapter 17, we had the account and record of David's uh, slaying of Goliath. And so these events now follow that immediately. Now, when he had, David, had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And so, these, Jonathan is probably at least a little bit older, maybe even significantly older than David uh, at this time, and he would remain for the remainder of his life, but uh, probably a, a little bit older than him. And this... What happens between Jonathan and David here is what we call a kindred spirit, where you come into contact with somebody in the body of Christ and you just connect with them. And there's something about their life and there's that what is in them by the Spirit of God is in you by the Spirit of God. You don't even have to communicate it. You're just on the same page. And what Jonathan did is he recognized in David, by the Holy Spirit and by God's call upon his life, the same things that he recognized in his own life. And as he saw David take, and, 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 and Jonathan watched it from the distance like everyone else did, run toward that giant and kill that giant and boast in the greatness of God before he did it and just amazing and then to watch him do it and the only explanation for it is the power of the Holy Spirit and God's working in his life this is something that resonated in Jonathan the faith that David had the boldness that David had the love for God and the zeal for God that David had Because those were all things that Jonathan experienced. You remember just a few chapters earlier when he and his armor bearer alone went into the camp of the Philistines and uh, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, they couldn't even number the amount of the soldiers and yet uh, it is nothing for our God to save with many or with few and God brought this great victory. And he saw those same things in David that, that he had experienced himself and that he obviously did not see in his father or really see anywhere else among the men in the nation of, of Israel. I um, understand from some very recent polling and all, I, I'd almost never follow any polling that tracks the body of Christ. It's too depressing, candidly. So I just go on about my business and I obey the Lord and try to be faithful to His calling. But the trends are just dreadful, candidly. So I don't need the aggravation, so I don't follow it. But I will will quote something tonight, just to perk you up. Uh, But I understand that there's recent polling that indicates that in the average Christian church today, only 18% of the people that attend the church, attend it, and for them, 
this Bible, the Word of God, that's the standard for their life, the definition of right and wrong for them, and they are deliberately choosing to live a life that looks like God's Word. 18%. And the the, uh, uh, kind of conclusion uh, related to the polling is that 82% then of the people that then constitute the rest of, con- of, of a congregation are essentially window dressings. When they come to the Word of God and it has to do with entertainment or it has to do with um, saying no to something difficult that they don't want to say no to uh, in, in anywhere in their life, that, that 82% comes in and says, I don't care what God says, I'm on my way to heaven, I believe that, that that's true, but this is not the standard for my life. When this says, when, when God's Word says something, that's just the beginning of a negotiation for me, not that it's a settled issue. Now that's Saul. That's Saul. We, and we know, we've seen where Saul is headed and is following his life. So essentially the idea is you've got 82% of the people that constitute a window dressing and you're essentially just being effective in 18% of a congregation. Now, I like to think that those are, uh, the statistics aren't quite that dismal. But here's what it tells me. What it tells me is, I know that the devil has, I know the devil's real. I know on a daily basis the devil's real. The, the old, old story of the young zealous preacher who was teaching about the devil and warfare and all these kind of things and the old kind of uh, old man that had been ministering for years there in the English village and all uh, came up to him and, you know, uh, rebuked him for his belief in the existence of the devil and, and the young man said, well, if you ever, you know, win against the tide or you win against him, you'd run into him quick enough. And that's, that's true. So I know the devil's real. And what is happening, if statistics like this are true, I know the devil's resources are finite. He has only so many fallen demons that followed him in his rebellion. And they're very, it's very formidable, that, that demonic realm is very formidable. But I know that as that group of people gets smaller and smaller that really comes to the Word of God and says, this is a settled issue in my life, and I want my life to be used by God. I want to make a difference for God. It becomes a smaller and smaller group of people that he has to assign his forces against. So what that means is for the people who are the real deal and they want to walk the, talk the talk and walk the walk, it means that you're going to face a greater resistance in your Christian life than you've ever faced before. And I think, personally, and I speak to everybody, but I speak to men especially this evening, I think that in order for us to prosper in our service to the Lord, in our personal relationship with the Lord, we're going to have to be Davids that find some Jonathans, or we're going to have to be Jonathans that find some Davids. Where we find people that have a kindred spirit with us, related to God, They get it. They want it. They live it. They have a zeal for God. And some of you know that I I tell people this on a fairly regular basis. 
where someone comes to me and they're getting pounded in a particular situation in spiritual warfare, some other realm, and almost invariably I will ask, do you, know, do you have two or three friends that you know will pray for you? I, not a, do you have two or three Christian friends? Do you have two or three Christian friends that you know pray and they will commit to pray for you for the next month? Yes, I do. I have those kind of people. Good. Call them and get them to pray for you for the next month in the situation that you're in. And I don't think it's going to be a case of just doing this for the next month. I think this is going to become our portion as Christians in the United States of America. We don't live in a Christian, Bible-dominated culture anymore. It is what it is. I'm not going to rail against it tonight. But it's no different than in the book of Acts when, they, when Jesus sent out in the Gospels and they sent out in the book of Acts, they sent them out in twos. This is not a going out is a one kind of thing anymore. You've got to go out in twos. And I would encourage every single one of us, but especially as men, I, I get the whole loner thing. I am such a loner you can't believe it. That, that's where I like to be. And I, and I really don't like, and I haven't liked through the years, where people try and force me into relationships with people. They give me these programs and these ideas. I resist that kind of stuff. But I'm telling you, this is where we are now and how we need one another to in, in, have the Lord identify for us these two or three people and then to pray for one another. Several years ago in this church... We've always had prayer ministry going on. We've always had prayer going on related to the services here. And I had a period of months where I would, on Sunday mornings I would get into this pulpit and I'm telling you, I was like fighting the devil all the way through the sermon. I'm not going to tell you what that looks like or feels like for me, but I know what it is and I know that's what I was going through. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. Because he's penetrating way too far into this body to be able to do that kind of thing. So I thought to myself, I said, well, evidently in the realm of prayer, in the past, what used to work for us doesn't work for us anymore. And so we developed the prayer teams that pray during both services on the Sunday morning. If you're a part of those teams, praise the Lord. Thank you so much for what you do. The difference is discernible for me and I think for others in the room. But we see how the necessity of this thing called prayer and intercession for one another. And so there's my little speech on it, but I think the Lord is in it. And, and to, to find these kind of kindred spirits and then, then we can feel like uh, the dynamic of the Spirit and the ability to break forward in, in service to Him, fruit to Him, and maybe ways we've been hindered now because He's been able to attach higher level demons to you or more of them to resist you in your service to the Lord. So this is, we start, you know, now in chapter 18, learning about a very, very beautiful relationship between Jonathan and David. And I think it's great because you look at Jonathan and David and you see that he loved him as his own soul and stuff like that. And, and you just think, man, that's like a girl thing or something. 
with a beautiful, one of the most beautiful love stories in the entire Bible is between two men in a sanctified sense, and it's just a beautiful, beautiful kindred spirit, uh, uh, God-ordained way. And so Saul took him, verse 2 that day, took David, and wouldn't let him go home to his father's house anymore. Apparently up to this point in time, uh, David had been spending part of his time in the palace with the king when he'd get into these places where he'd be attacked by the, de- the demonic spirit. He would play the instrument for uh, King Saul. But then there was other times where he was released to go home and look after the sheep. Uh, after the slaying of Goliath, Saul just looked and said, uh, I'm gonna, he's ours now uh, for good and wouldn't let him go home. And then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. He'd give his life for David. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and he gave it to David. That's his royal robe. And also with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. And so Jonathan and David, they make a, a covenant here. And when Jonathan takes and he gives his royal robe, he takes it off. He has a a robe inside underneath of it, a a tunic inside. But he takes his royal robe off that signifies him to be the king of the, uh, uh, the son of the king and the future king of Israel, humanly speaking. And he hands that robe to David. And in essence, he's communicating, I am Saul's son, but I reckon, and I have, by earthly standards, I have the right to be the next king of Israel, but I recognize that you are the Lord's choice to be the next king of Israel. And he gives him the robe to communicate it in kind of a physical way. You are the next king. And he got it. And here is, here is Jonathan, who should have had envy, jealousy, anger, disappointment. He should have looked across that field and when everyone else is going, hip, hip, hooray for David, Jonathan should have been the one person in the crowd that looked and goes, there's my competition. That's the guy that can unseat me as the next king of Israel. And yet he didn't. And it really says something great about him. He recognized anointing in David's life, and he recognized that the position that he wanted to take in David's life, there was no threat to him whether David became the next king. I want to come alongside this man, and for the sake of God, for the sake of God's people, I want to make him the greatest success that he can possibly be. That's something his father should have done years earlier. His father should have, when he looks and he discovers that, you know, and he understands God's anointing upon David and all, Saul is going to be threatened by it, he's going to become jealous over it, and he's going to begin to resist David. And and he's going to force God then to resist him. The thing that Saul should have done long years earlier, when he was rejected as king for his disobedience, is he could have come to God, could have come to Samuel and said, listen... I know I've blown it. I know I have, I have ruined my first calling. I know that I, the, the kings are not going to be descended through me, and I know God is even going to bring my kingdom to an end. Would you please show me who the next king is going to be so that I can come alongside him and support him and help him in any way to become the greatest king that he can be? And Saul never did it because he didn't have that kind of character. But Jonathan had that kind of character. And when he gives David here his armor and 
even his sword and his bow and his belt, he is saying to David, I will never harm you. I have the ability to do you harm in the physical realm. But you don't have to worry about me coming on your rear or on your flank. I will never do you harm. I see what God is doing in your life. And that's the covenant that Jonathan made with David. And they kind of did this thing of handing these things over to drive home the lesson. Of course, David returned all those items back to Jonathan. But the point had been uh, made. And so David went out wherever Saul sent him, and he behaved wisely. And Saul sent him, sent, set him over the men of war, so he made uh, David an o- officer in his kind of standing army that was a part of Israel at that time. And he was, David was, accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of David's servants. David is a very young man at this point in time. But they recognize an anointing on this young man's life. And they recognize how wisely he conducts himself. And so nobody looked and said, nobody despised his youth. Nobody said, this is, who's this kid? We don't have to respect him at all. David, because of God's anointing upon his life, he was, he was given great respect by the people and even by uh, Saul's servants, other officers in the military. Now, it had happened as they were coming home that David was returning from the slaughter, uh, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So here you've got this great standoff between the army of the Philistines and the army of the children of Israel. It goes on for 40 days. David ultimately kills Goliath and it leads to a great victory over the Philistines. The women then, when the the army of the Jews would come back, and, and really in any of the cultures, but certainly among the Jews, when they would come back victoriously from war, the women would greet them with a celebration. Why? Because it's... All of the women in the city, that's their husbands out in that battle. That's their sons out in that battle. And so there was a lot riding on whether they won or they lost, a lot of heartbreak. And so in a victory like this, they were excited. Additionally, for a woman in the ancient world and still in many parts of the world today, if your side lost, it was bad news for you on a lot of levels. So they were very excited when there was this kind of victory. It was something for women to really celebrate. And so they were celebrating, and they had made up this song, and this is the song that they sang as David and Saul come back in, uh, into the city. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has slain his tens of thousands. Ooh. Now, you know what's interesting about that song? It's fair. It's true. But it's not going to sit right with Saul. Because here, as as we see, we'll go right on it. Then Saul, he was very angry. And the saying, this song, he didn't like it. No top 40 here. He would displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed only thousands. 
Now what more can he have but the kingdom, but become the next king? And so Saul eyed David that day forward. And the idea is that he eyed him with suspicion and he eyed him with uh, jealousy and just kind of keeping a watch on him because he, he realized this is, this is my competition, at least on, on some level. So the song was fair. It was a fair assessment of, of David's short history compared to, to, to Saul's history, and, and he didn't, uh, didn't like that uh, at all. So he, Saul's put in second place uh, on it and, and really upset uh, about it. Jealousy is now the next thing that kind of gloms onto Saul as a leader, and he's just piling up just terrible, terrible decision-making and terrible, terrible things that he's allowing himself to be dominated by. So he's eyeing David with suspicion and this paranoia setting in. And David's not interested in being anything but a great servant to Saul. But he's, Saul's got this whole alternative reality going on in his mind. And jealousy, I'll tell you something, it is real and it is very real in Christian ministry and it is very dangerous and if it isn't dealt with in a person's heart and service it will destroy their effectiveness no exception you can hide certain things you cannot hide jealousy in the service of the Lord it was jealousy that caused uh, Satan to fall to begin with. He looked at the position that God had. And he said, I want to have that position. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And you go into the New Testament and all of the lists that you find of these terrible sins that are listed and all, and you see jealousy and envy as they're listed in it. There are men and women that God calls to kill a thousand, so to speak. And then there are other men and women that He calls to kill ten thousand. And that's none of my business. And that's none of your business. Our business is if He's called us to kill a thousand, that we kill a thousand. And if He's called us to kill thousands or ten thousand, then we kill ten thousand. But God calls who He likes, and it won't do any good to look at somebody that God is using in a way that looks like they're being used in a greater way, in a more prominent way, and becoming jealous of that, because not only will it not turn me into a killer of 10,000, but I now lose the joy that I ought to have as one being used by God to kill a thousand. It's a terrible... The, the book of Proverbs talks about jealousy being rottenness to the bone. It is a thing that goes all the way right into your roots and it ruins life. And so the importance of looking and saying, for, certainly for us as Christians, and say, I can't believe He uses me to do anything. I'm happy for whatever He's called me to do. And you know what? One of the hardest things with jealousy is what you've got going on right here where you've got a younger man who has a greater anointing than an older man. And God is going to replace the older man with the younger man. And, and that, that's one of the hardest situations to deal with in life. 
And so he turns now to jealousy, and it is so, so dangerous. I like uh, Harry Truman. He's, uh, at least the quote is ascribed to him in this vein. He said, it is amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. Saul wants the credit. He wants to be the hero of everything. Now, for any of you that are sitting here and you say, man, I, got, I understand that whole jealousy thing. Man, it, 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 let me read you a little passage from Scripture. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, Philippians 2, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Root for other people like Jonathan did. And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so here he gives into, and I spend time on it here because I don't care who you are. I mean, this is going to pick at us on some level. We're all got a fallen nature from Adam and Eve, and, and this is really dangerous stuff, and it's going to be one of the key reasons for Saul's rapid decline. Maybe not, it doesn't get defeated in battle real quick, but he begins to decline spiritually, emotionally, mentally. I mean, it's like he plunges off a cliff at this point. And it happened on the next day that the distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied inside the house. So he's got this demonic spirit that is uh, distressing him, and he begins to head into prophecy. The word prophesied there, it means to speak under inspiration. And clearly he is not speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he is speaking under the inspiration of, of the demonic spirit. And so he's in this whole thing, and so David did what he always did, and that is he began to play music with his hand, as at other times, to provide relief for this uh, demonic uh, 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 attack that was upon him. Um, but there was a spear in Saul's hand. You, you, uh, demonically afflicted people that are absolutely given over to uh, jealousy, you don't like to see him armed. My mom used to say when we were growing up, she says, beware of Greeks bearing gifts. I never knew what it meant. If it's something terrible toward a Greek and you're a Greek, then, then forget about it. I didn't mean anything harmful by it. Should have never said that. <laughs> edit that. Edit that from the day. It's, you know, you stop and you think about it, and it has to be really bad, doesn't it? But anyway, because you're warning, beware of. Maybe it had something to do with Jackie Onassis and, and Aria. Well, okay. So anyway, Genesis right here where we are tonight in, in the Bible. Never trust. A jealous or a bitter person with a spear in their hand. Or a telephone. <laughs> or a computer keyboard. Or a blogger. Or whatever it might be that could be used as a weapon today. 
And Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. He tries to cold-blooded murder David, and David escaped his presence twice. Sometimes we wonder, why in the world, God, why do you allow the devil to attack me? Why do you allow this kind of spiritual warfare? Why do you allow him to throw spears at me this way? Why do you allow him to shoot so many fiery arrows at me? And the reason is, and we rarely think of it in those terms, is that when the demonic realm is throwing this stuff at us, it's because they see an anointing of God on a person's life. And they have already seen this thing played over and over and over again through history. They see the threat that this person is to their kingdom and the advancement of the kingdom of God that's going to come through them. And rarely do we, I don't think it's very often, many of us at least, where we stop and we think about it, it must be that God is doing something good in my life and through my life. And that's just the way that it goes. You're gonna, if David's gonna be king and David's gonna enjoy this anointing and this favor and be prepared to become the next king of Israel, it means Saul's gonna throw spears at you. That's all there is to it. The devil's gonna throw spears at you. Now Saul was afraid of David. Why? Because the Lord was with him. But he had departed from Saul. Now you don't solve that by throwing spears. You solve that by repenting and turning back to God. But he was afraid of David because he looked and he saw a great anointing on this, this young man's life. And therefore Saul removed him from his presence and he made David his captain over a thousand men. Made him a high military uh, officer. And he went out and he came in before the people. Now don't look at this as a promotion where, where Saul is saying, oh good, I really like David and, and he's doing pretty good, uh, you know, in, uh, militarily and, and some success and all. So I'm going to promote him to captain and uh, put him over a thousand men. This isn't a, a, uh, any kind of a promotion at all. It's a persecution against him. He wants David to go out to war and get killed. Let the Philistines kill him rather than me kill him. Now it's interesting that in those days, in warfare at, those, at that time, you didn't have like Napoleon kind of on the back lines and, 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 and being the general of the battle from, from behind on a hill or something overseeing the battle. The leaders... Uh, of the armies, they led the men into battle. Uh, they kind of did that all the way up through World War I in, in Europe. But England lost so many officers, and officers are not a dime a dozen. No anything in life is a dime a dozen in terms of people's skills and abilities. But they, they ended up, when World War II started, uh, almost on the heels of World War One. they had almost... Almost all of their officers had been slaughtered in World War I because they had their officers lead at the front and they were picked off immediately as they would begin these assaults. And so it was after that that they would move the officers back then to run the battle from more of a back line. So he figures, I'll put David uh, over a thousand men, which means he's going to be in the biggest and the hardest battles and surely some Philistine's going to take him out. That's what he's trying to do, to use the Philistines uh, to, to kill him. And David behaved wisely in all of his ways, and the Lord was with him. 
rats, Saul would say. And so, therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. The obvious favor of the Lord on his life. But all Israel and Judah loved David. The greater exposure they got to David, the more they loved him because he went out and came in. That's talking about military campaigns before them. So they loved him for his success as a military uh, uh, officer and also because of his character. And then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you as wife. And so, um, the, remember when David was uh, in, had slain Goliath, one of the promises of the three blessings that, that the person that killed Goliath would get would be to marry one of the daughters of the king. And so here is Saul kind of keeping his end of the bargain, and I'm going to give my oldest daughter Merab then to him as a wife. He said, uh, but here's the condition, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battle. So David doesn't have a dowry that he can give King Saul, and a dowry, you had, to, you had to pay the father of the wife and uh, the, the daughter that you were going to marry. And it was kind of alimony in advance, but it was also in case you died or something and she had to come back home and to be supported. There was a financial uh, support for her in that. And so David doesn't have a dowry fit for a king's daughter. And so Saul says, listen, we, all you have to do is be valiant for me, fight the Lord's battle. So he basically p- puts him on the line, promises his daughter and says, just keep fighting for me to earn your stripes uh, and, and then you'll get my daughter. But behind all of it, Saul was thinking, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Now, you know, you look at this whole thing, and David is probably, he's, no, he's probably about 20 years old at, at this time where we're dealing with him here in, in the thing. He is going to end up becoming the king of Israel uh, at, at the age of 30. So we got this 30-year, or this 10-year period between this point in time and the time that he's going to become the king. And that 10-year period was very simply a period of preparation in his life for him to become the king that God wanted him to become. Now, one of the things that I don't like is I don't like to hear preparation in 10 years all in the same sentence. I'd like God to tell me what's he going to do, and all right, we've got five minutes here, let's go ahead and knock that out. I'm going to be the king of what? But one of the things that's interesting about the Lord is He's very careful to prepare us for what He has called us to do. There is something, and His preparation can be very, very hard, but there is something harder than the preparation, and that is to ultimately find myself in the place that God has called me to, unprepared to handle the challenges of it, not to have the spiritual character and the personal character to to navigate it properly. So God has such great things planned for David that this preparation period is going to be a period of 10 years. Now you look anywhere in life and there's preparation for a person to be successful in, in any field that is, is significant in, in life. Uh, you look at a military uh, commander or a soldier. It requires preparation for them 
to become sophisticated enough and, to, and learn how to conduct themselves to be successful on the battlefield. You look at a doctor, physician, surgeon, and there's a long period of preparation before they're ever put into an operating room. And that preparation is necessary. You take someone who's an auto mechanic. You take an athlete. You think about the years and years and years. You think these guys just show up and they're 280 pounds and 6'6 and sculpted and look like some kind of a statue from Italy or something. And there's years and years have gone in to become that professional uh, athlete. By the way, the Warriors could use a good power for it. But anyway, we'll talk about some, who was I describing there. But, it, but even in athletics, preparation is required to, for excellence. And the same thing is true in the body of Christ. And so all this that's going on in David's life is there's a preparation that is going on in, in, uh, in, uh, while being under King Saul. Now, my, my logic would be, as you're looking at Saul and you're looking at David, you would look and say, this is the worst. What are you? Being under Saul is the worst thing you could do to David. I mean, the best thing you could do to David is get him out of that palace, get him away from Saul, kill Saul, and let's get on the program. But Saul plays a very, very... Why doesn't God wipe Saul out? I'll tell you one of the reasons. The reason he doesn't do it immediately is Saul plays a very critical part in David's preparation to become king. And the reason that God brought David close to Saul and kept him close to Saul for so long was to remove the Saul that was in David and the Saul that's inside of all of us. And for David to get a close-up look at this is what happens to a king that considers partial obedience to be obedience and does not understand that partial obedience is disobedience. This is what they turn into. If they give themselves over to jealousy and they disobey God, this is what happens, David, and what you're seeing in Saul will be the same end for you if you don't learn from Saul's life. And he did learn from Saul's life. God does the same thing today in our lives. I wish everything I learned was a correspondence course. All I had to do was pay the postage. I wish everything I learned in life was that God brought amazing people around me all the time and all the only lesson I had to learn was to see the right way to do it, the great way to do it, and see these kind of heroic examples of faith and character. But it doesn't work that way alone. He does that. But sometimes He brings along this other group of people and you watch them self-destruct over long years and the lesson is driven home and the lesson you take away is I never want to be like that person. And by being near that person, those characteristics of their life are ripped out of our lives, gladly ripped out of our lives. We say, take this away, Lord. I never want to end up like that. It happens all the time. I think on a physical level, I grew up in, in uh, the home that I grew up. Both my mom and my stepdad were heavy smokers. He was until a certain point. He almost died one night. And they're both very, very heavy smokers. And I, I watched 
what heavy smoking did to a human life. I watched by the day what it did to my mom, one day at a time, but over long periods of years. And I said to myself, I will never marry a smoker. Not because I'm better than them, but because I cannot spend the rest of my life watching that do in another human life what I saw invested the early part of my life in, in doing that. Sometimes the Lord can put you in at work or raised by parents that are this way or some other place and He puts you next to a complainer. There's hardly anything I, I dislike more in life than to be around a person who's constantly complaining. I'm complaining, aren't I? There's some people that just complain and complain and complain and complain. And what happens when you're around that kind of a person for a while? You say, I never want to be a complainer. I don't want to complain about one thing for the rest of my life. And what's happened? That person's done their soul work in you. And, li- and all of life is like that. So often we look at these things and we say, this is working against me. I had the worst childhood. I had the worst marriage. I had the worst this. I had the worst that. I had the worst friends. And, I ha- and we don't realize that God did great things through that. And He was doing it in David's life. There's only one way to take and remove the Saul out of David's life, and that was to put him next to Saul to see it up close for long years. And mission was accomplished. That's part of the preparation. And so David said to Saul, verse 18, Who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? How could you even offer me, genuine humility, offer me your daughter as, as my wife? But it happened at the time when that when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to uh, Adriel, the uh, Meholahathite, as a wife. So David, I mean, Saul's just fragmenting now, just another sign of his instability. He breaks his promise and gives her to someone else. Now, Michael, Saul's daughter, younger daughter, uh, loved David. So she, she's... Like this guy a lot, good looking guy and heroic and all that, up and comer. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him for sick reasons. And Saul said, I will give her to him that she may be a snare to him. Now, you've got to be careful here because people got a chip on their shoulder concerning Michael. They said, Yeah, what kind of a wife was that? I mean, here's Saul, he's raising this Michael, this daughter, and says, Man, the guy that marries her, whoo. He is cursed. He'll be a snare to anyone. That's not how it began. She loved him. And the whole idea is he's going to use her as a snare to try and get David uh, killed. And so she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. And therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall be my son-in-law today. And Saul commanded his servants to take the message then, communicate with David secretly, and tell him, Look, the king is the light in you. All of his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. He sent servants because the last time he said it himself, it turned out to be a lie. So he doesn't have a lot of credibility. So they bring the message to David. And so Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David. And David says, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing that I am 
poor and lightly and a poor and lightly esteemed man. I can't come up with a dowry. And the servants of Saul uh, told Saul, saying, "This is what David said." And so David had a plan. Uh, Saul had a plan for the dowry. And then Saul said, "Thus you shall say to David." The king does not desire any dowry but 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on uh, the king's enemies. But Saul sought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So this is a bizarre kind of wedding dowry kind of request. Now, by asking for 100 foreskins of the Philistines... Basically, the whole idea is that he hopes that in try, in, you only get those by killing someone, okay? So, he's, would just be frank about it. Guys don't just give those up. So anyway, you, here he is in the, now I'm really lost. So, so, so he's thinking, all right, he goes and he's got to kill a hundred Philistines in battle here. One of them is going to kill him. So he's still trying to find that Philistine that can kill uh, David. And, of course, the hundred foreskins would, would reveal two things. Number one, that it really was a dead Philistine because the Philistines did not practice circumcision. The Jews weren't the only ones that practiced circumcision in the ancient world. So it would prove that it was a dead Philistine, and then, number two, it would prove that they were dead, too. So this is what he was, uh, what he was attempting to do. And so when his servants told David these things, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. He wanted to at that point, and now the days had not expired. And therefore, David arose, he went, he and his men, they killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, gave them in full count, to the king uh, that he might become the king's son-in-law and Saul gave him Michael his daughter as wife and thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David so I mean, he just he's up against God he just doesn't get it and that Michael uh, Saul's daughter loved him and so Saul was still more afraid of David and so Saul became David's enemy uh, continually and then the princes of the Philistines went out to war and so it was wherever they went that David behaved more wisely than the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed and so now Saul isn't even bothering to go out to battle anymore he's just sitting in dark rooms uh, throwing spears around and so he's isolated himself now from the people David is out in the middle of things and so people's hearts are naturally going to turn uh, toward David now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. And so he calls his inner kind of, uh, his bodyguards, his, his inner circle, and now he just openly encourages the murder uh, of David to solve his problem. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. He's a, a good friend. Now this is a beautiful thing here, really, because what you've got now, it's... Um, the, what you've got in this situation now is Jonathan is going to be forced to side with his family or to side with David. 
to side with his father, blood is thicker than water, but right is thicker than blood, he's going to be forced to choose to stay loyal to his father or do the right thing. And again, there's so much that's heroic about Jonathan here, and, and he chooses to do the right thing. And so he told David, warned him about this, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you, therefore please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. Uh, then what I have observed, I'll tell you. So I'm going to, uh, uh, this is the danger that you're in. I'm going to try and talk my dad through this and see what's going on. And thus Jonathan spoke well of David to, his father, uh, to Saul, his father. And he said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good to you. So Jonathan's trying to talk his dad down from this thing. And just like when his dad was going to kill him for tasting the honey in the battle, let's think about this a little bit. And so he's, he's talking him down from this, and uh, he's just telling him, man, David's history is a, a history of just pure loyalty to you, for he took his life in his hands and he killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? And so Saul... It's got a mood swing here. He heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now, Saul swearing about anything doesn't mean anything, but that's how he felt at the moment. And then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. And so Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. One eye open all the time. Tell you. And there was war, and there was war again, and David went out and he fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, and so David fled and escaped that night. And so a couple of uh, attempts on David's life. Saul was a very seasoned soldier, so God is basically protecting David's life in all of this. These are point-blank range. He should have killed them both times. And Saul also sent messengers then and in his second attempt now to kill, uh, to kill uh, David, he sent messengers, really assassins, to David's house to watch him and, and through the night to make sure he didn't leave and then to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told David, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you're going to be killed. You've got to get out of this house. I know my dad. He is going to kill you. And so Michael let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. Michael then took an image, and, he laid it, and she laid it on a bed, put a cover of goat's hair uh, for its head, kind of the hair on the whole thing, trying to make it look like a body, covered it with clothes, David's clothes. So when, the, uh, when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said to the messengers, He's sick. And then Saul 
sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. So Jesus, get out of here. I'm going to cover you to buy time. Because if he ran out and they discovered right away that he was gone, they could hunt him down very, very quickly. And so you get out. I'll do something to buy time. It talks about, uh, as you see it there in verse 31, that Michael took an image. And it's the same word that's used for an idolatrous image. But it doesn't have to necessarily uh, be that. Uh, so sometimes people look and say, what in the world is David doing allowing an, uh, a, an image of an idol to be in the house? doesn't have to be that. It could have been a wooden image, uh, some kind of a sculpture of a of a a person or something like that that was in the house as some kind of a decoration. She is the daughter of a king. They had that, uh, probably she had access to that kind of wealth. So she takes this thing, lays it down on the bed, puts the goat's hair on, you know, looking like David's hair, and so they, and then puts the clothes on him, and then lets them take a peek in the room. There he is. Ooh, ooh, he does look bad. I've never seen David look so bad. What's he got, man? He looks like a stiff there. Whatever disease that guy's got there, I don't want to get it. So they cleared out and they went back to tell Saul all about it. And Saul said, listen, if you, got a, if you don't want to touch him, put him on, take the whole bed and bring him to me that I'll kill him. And so they went back to the house and they discovered that the whole thing was a ruse. And then Saul said to Michael, his daughter, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered uh, Saul and she said, he, has, he said to me, David threatened me, let me go, why should I kill you? I had to, let it, I, I had to lie to you because he would kill me. So that's, that's a lie. God just makes a record of it. He doesn't endorse it, but that's the alibi that she gave. And so David fled, he escaped. He went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed at uh, Naoth. Now, this is very, very good on David's part. He's in a bad spot. He's all alone in the world, except for Jonathan, really, and, and his wife. And they are both got their father and the complications of all of that. And so when he's in this situation, he doesn't know where to turn. So he goes to Samuel who is the most spiritual person in the whole nation that he knows about. And when, when, when godly people find themselves in this kind of trouble, they seek out counsel and help from godly people. And that's what David does here. So he goes, and, and maybe he went to Samuel and said, Listen, you're the guy that anointed me king when I was a kid over there in Bethlehem, remember? Everything was going fine till you went and did that. What can you tell me about this whole thing of me being anointed the next king and Saul and why in the world is he trying to kill me? So he's a confused young man. And he goes to Saul, uh, Samuel rather, to try and get uh, some perspective. And so Saul learns that David had run to uh, Naoth in Ramah. And apparently what Samuel has done at this point, when he kind of retired from the public life of being 
uh, the judge or the prophet in, in, uh, uh, in Israel, and, and Saul became the king and kind of replaced him in that uh, very visual kind of position and all. Uh, Samuel didn't just, you know, go retire someplace and eat Twinkies. He, he went back to his hometown and he established something like a school for the prophets where uh, young men that felt that they had a calling of God in their lives could come to this school and he would train them in what it meant to be a prophet and, and to be a judge, to be an influence for God in, in the nation. That was probably his motivation in it. And so he established this school. So David goes to flee to him and that's what Saul is in the middle of and uh, helps us to understand what happens next. So. Saul is informed, hey, we know where David is, and Saul's going to use all the national resources to try and track him down. And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And uh, uh, the idea was to capture him and kill him. And so when they saw, they, so they went to Nahoth, and when they came into, uh, apparently they, they just busted in and they broke up some kind of a spiritual meeting that was going on. They broke up a worship service. So they just come in, they're just going to take the whole thing over. God said, you're not taking nothing over, I'm taking you over. So they come in, they, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and these assassins start prophesying also. you got to love it. Now sometimes you hear people say, you know, I believe that God has a sense of humor. And typically they'll use you as an example. Now I do believe that God has, has a, a sense of humor. But sometimes you have a problem finding an example in the Scriptures to prove it. Here is an example from the Scriptures to prove it. Here these top-notch assassins come in supposed to kill David. They walk into God's meeting and He turns them into prophets. Just overwhelms them, just takes over everything about them and, and takes the evil intent of their heart and, and so overwhelms them that he's able to get prophecy out of them. Something profitable out of, of them. And so, I didn't mean that, I'm not that clever, so disregard that. So here they are and, and they begin to prophesy and, and they're taken over. So Saul was told and he sent other messengers, a second group of assassins. Same thing happened to them. They prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messenger again, a third group. And the third time, they also prophesied. So I think Samuel's probably saying, we better build a wing on to the school here. We're going to... Saul keeps sending us these, these guys. And, and, and so what's happening here is actually really very special for David because not only is God... Um, uh, foiling their attempts to kill David. But he's doing it in a way where David is just at a low point. And he's just communicating to David. David, I've given you a promise. You're going to be the king. My promise is going to be true towards you. And whatever I have to do, whatever I have to overrule to make that happen, I'll do that. And David watches these guys that he probably knows by name, some real tough guys, come in and watches what God does to them. And it would have been a great encouragement to his faith in God that God was going to take care of him. And so then uh, Saul was told, 
all these things that had happened. So he then went to Rama, and he came to the great well that is at Seku. And so he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And someone said, in, Indeed, they are at Naoth in Rama. And so he went to Naoth in Rama, and then the Spirit of God was upon him also. He went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Rama. He's prophesying along the road. You're too much, Lord. I love it. I love this story. And, uh, and then when he finally got to the school of the prophets, he then stripped off his clothes and he prophesied before Samuel in a like manner. He lay down naked all day and all that night. Now, he didn't lay down naked naked. He didn't lay down nude naked. Um, he, he would have had an outer robe on. It's a very modest Jewish culture. Nobody went around naked, and the Holy Spirit certainly didn't make people do that. So they would typically wear an outer robe, and then underneath would be an inner robe or a tunic, kind of like those nightgowns that you see people wear in the old days or something. And so he would have had that on, but that was considered to be naked in a culture that was that modest. So he lays down, and he's just prophesying, and God keeps him in that condition all day and all night for what purpose? David heads out of uh, Naoth of Ramah and he's got a, a two-day head start to get away uh, from Saul as God keeps him in this sanctified, incapacitated state. And therefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? People were uh, so stunned to see this kind of spirituality in Saul. He was not a very spiritual person at all. And, but they did not realize the reason behind it. And it's really uh, wonderful how, you know, to, to realize that none of us, you know, you look at David, the one of the things we have a peace about is, is we serve the Lord, is to realize the Lord numbers our days. I mean, if, if I go home to be with the Lord, a non-rapture go home this week, I want you to know I have escaped death so many times already. There have been so many times I should have, I should have been gone from here already. And many of those times as a kingdom person, as a Christian and all. And what I realize is He's kept me and He's kept me so that the day comes that if something happens to me and I'm gone, it's not an accident. You say, what a tragedy, what a terrible thing. It just means it's my time to go. God has this kind of ability to protect our lives, to protect His calling on our lives until our lives are over. And when our lives are over, and our, that means our, ministry, our ministries are over, rather, then it's time to clear on out. And so the Lord is able to do whatever He needs to do in order to protect us in the same way that He protected David. But sometimes He lets us get in those pickles a little bit because He's developing our faith and he's developing our character. It's really a beautiful couple of chapters tonight. Let's stand together and we'll pray.